This is week two of Advent, and we've been keeping with the theme of the candles each week. Uh, there was hope last week, faith this week, joy next week, and love the week after. And as we're also going through this short series on the covenants, we find ourselves lining up the candle that represents faith also with the Abrahamic covenant. So quite fitting it is that Abraham is the father of faith in Scripture. So these uh, two align this week. I don't know if they'll go that well together through all of this series, but it goes pretty well this week. So uh, this morning what I'd like to do is I want to give a quick recap from last week, and then after that we'll speak for a moment on the meaning and the significance of the Abrahamic covenant as it relates to us this Advent. And what we'll find in this narrative that it is that it teaches us patience and waiting, number one. It teaches us faith in the face of uncertainty, and also how we should avoid worldly solutions to our sometimes crippling fears. But before we do that, let's read our text this morning that spells out for us the Abrahamic covenant. Again, the text is Genesis 17. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 this morning. Church, these are the words of God. Let's give attention to them. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your everlasting covenant. We thank you that because of Jesus, we can now enter, even as Gentiles, into this great covenant. We see even stretching all the way back from the original um, announcement of the covenant that people who are foreigners were able to be included in this. Lord, so we thank you today as we approach you that we are part of that one everlasting covenant by grace that you've extended towards us that we now see clearly in Jesus. So Lord, I pray that as we sit humbly at your feet today, being receptive of your word, that you would soften our hearts and allow 
uh, us to be able to hear clearly from you. Give us ears to hear that we might understand your word. Give us eyes to see that we might lay our eyes on your holy and inspired word that bears witness in our hearts who have the spirit inside of us that we might be able to uh, cry out even uh, saying, Abba, Father, saying amen to all the good things that you've handed to us in your word. We ask this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So last week we spoke about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, these two big overarching covenants that stretch all through Scripture. And we said all of humanity enters life through this covenant of works that was established with Adam. And if we're going to approach God on our own, we must do it perfectly, is what this covenant says. Perfect, perpetual obedience to the covenant is what the covenant of works says. So that was the essence of the covenant. Okay? We must do it, and there, are no, there is no wiggle room. But, as we saw, Adam broke this covenant. When Adam broke this covenant, he, as our representative head, broke it, and we fell with him. And in that way, we are covenant breakers with Adam. That is why we talk about the fall, and we include ourselves in that, not just Adam and Eve. Okay? So that was the covenant of works. But then we also talked about the covenant of grace, that gracious covenant where God condescends and offers salvation to us, not by works or by a perfect life in and of ourselves, but by faith in someone who did have a perfect life, namely Jesus Christ. This is who we see is the, the essence of the covenant. This is the covenant of grace fully realized in Jesus Christ. Okay? Now we said last week this covenant of grace hasn't always been as clear through history as it is now in light of Christ. We know clearly Jesus is who the covenant is with. He is the offspring. But God over time, lots of time, revealed more and more about this gracious covenant with humanity through the means of temporary administration. This is the way that scripture talks about these other figures that are part of the covenant. They were administrators of the covenant. So within this one covenant of grace that stretches all through scripture, we have these um, kind of sub-covenants. We have the Noahic covenant. We have the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and also the Davidic covenant. Okay. Then these all culminate, as we will see later, in the final permanent administrator being Jesus in the new covenant. Okay. This is where it's finally fulfilled. So in short, we have one large growing covenant not many different covenants that contradict each other. This is important to see because there are some Christians that kind of believe that these covenants were different um, and um, not one big overarching covenant. They were um, fundamentally different from each other. And there were, in, in some ways, people were being saved in different ways through different times. But we believe that the Bible says that, no, it's one big covenant all throughout history. And yes, it had different administrators, but it's still one covenant of grace that runs through all of Scripture with continuity. Okay. So the Noahic covenant, that's what we talked about last week. In this Noahic covenant, we, we saw that God promised preservation and patience in the hopeful symbolism of the rainbow, that thing that you guys still see after it rains many times. And what you see when you see that rainbow is you should see that God loves his creation. He said it's good and that he's committed to it. God says, I like my creation. I made it and it's good and I'm going to stick with it. So every time we see that rainbow, we should remember that, that God will not give up on his creation, that he will not destroy everything as he did in the flood. So this is the sign and the seal of the everlasting covenant that was made with Noah. Okay. Now this week, as you've already heard, uh, we're moving now to the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant that he made with Abraham. And now we've already given a little bit of a snapshot made with Abraham, that covenant with Abraham, but there's a long narrative to this covenant that spans over several chapters of Genesis. Genesis 17, from where we read, is not the first time that this promise was mentioned to 
Abraham about the blessing of the nations. It's not just this one short passage. Uh, there's actually a long history that comes with Abraham. And that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, all the way back in Genesis 11, you can follow along if you want, but I'm going to kind of give a summary as we walk through the life of Abraham this morning. But starting back in Genesis 11, we are introduced to this man named Abram. Not Abraham, but Abram, who lived in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, This is a pagan land. He's living among pagans. And Abram, we read, took a wife named Sarai. Not Sarah, Sarai. Her, her name gets changed as well. And as soon as she is introduced in Genesis 11.30, it points out this very important detail that she was barren and had no child. That's her introduction. Think about that, ladies. This is my wife. She can't have kids. That, that's essentially how Sarah is introduced into the narrative. It doesn't say anything else about her other than that she was barren and had no child. Right after it says, here's Abraham. He's from land of the Chaldeans. So here we have a sort of call as we move out of Genesis 11 and into Genesis 12. The, the narrative sort of leaves that detail there and picks back up on the story of Abram. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So he's calling him out from Ur. And I will make of you a great nation, it says. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who honors you, I, or him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? Now think about the context of what it's just told us about Abram and his wife. This is what he's promised. All the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. From you I will make you a great nation, even though you don't have kids. So here we have something similar to the Proto-Evangelium that we talked about last week. If you weren't here, uh, I encourage you to check out that last sermon. It's going go, uh, to tie into all of the sermons that we're going to look at through this Advent season. But Proto-Evangelium, that big fancy word, essentially means first announcement of the gospel. This is what theologians refer to back in Genesis where God told the serpent, I'm going to crush your head, but you are going to bruise the woman's offspring's heel. Okay, So it's a little bit of a gospel, but it's not quite a covenant. And that's something of what we have here in Genesis 12, when God tells Abraham that he's going to bless uh, all the nations through him. So it's a promise, but it's not quite a formal covenant. Not yet, at least. Through, though Sarah was barren, God promises uh, not that she will have children. Notice it doesn't say anything about Sarai in that uh, promise. It just talks about Abraham or Abram at this time. But the, Abram would be the father of many nations. And that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, you can imagine how this call of Sarah's husband might have been intimidating to her. Think of Sarai. She's standing beside, uh, beside Abram as he's getting this call from God. It seems to, to all center around Abram. She isn't really mentioned here. And in fact, she maybe even doubted that she would be a part of this call. Think about what she might have been thinking about in her mind as her husband hears this. After all, she's barren, right? She can't have kids, and Abram has just promised a lot of kids. So where does that leave her? How does she play into this? So in her mind, she might have been wondering if maybe she was going to die. Maybe she was thinking, maybe I die in this the story, and later on, Abram finds another wife, and I'm out of the picture, and that's how it gets fulfilled. We don't know what she was thinking, but you can just kind of imagine what it might have been going through her mind as God gave this promise to Abram. Now, whether you realize it or not, we all have a tendency to do this. 
Okay, our, our mind starts to spin. When we hear a plan of the future, um, and we don't know all the details, someone tells us something's going to happen, in fear, we wonder if we're going to be a part of that or not. Or maybe, how do we play into that? We start to get scared, and our, our mind goes in places that it should not. <clears throat> and, and this was the beginning of Abraham's call. This is kind of where he started out as a family unit. And if you would jump forward to chapter 15, you find the actual covenant made with Abram. In chapter 15, we read this elucidating story of a divine encounter that Abram had after he rescued his nephew Lot from cap captivity. And there's also the, the, the place where he meets Melchizedek, which we won't get into that today, but uh, this is where he meets Melchizedek that's later mentioned in Hebrews. But turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 15 as we see the covenant is spelled out a little bit more clearly as Abraham is growing on his revelation of what God wants of him in this promise. Again, Genesis 15 says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of your household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all. He brought him out all these, cut them in half, and laid them half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, notice how kind of dark and eerie this gets here. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Look at Egypt and the slavery that they had there. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. From the iniquity, or for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay. It's kind of a weird story, right? Uh, you have these animals chopped up and all these weird uh, things happening. But even though this is an obscure story, let me explain this covenant ritual a bit. 
in the ancient ancient world, this wasn't that unheard of. Actually, this was somewhat common. Um, this is this wasn't a one-off thing that God did that was completely unique and different from all the other uh, pagan nations of the world. The the meaning of this ritual that was actually somewhat common was that the animal sacrifice uh, signified the death of either of the two parties involved if they were to break the covenant. Okay, so they'd kill this animal, they'd split it in half, so that they both walked through this split animal, and they essentially said, let the fate of this animal be my fate if I break this covenant with you. Okay, so they'd both go through and say, if either one of us doesn't hold up the covenant, let me be like this animal, dead, split open. Okay, that, that was what this covenant meant. But did you notice something about this occurrence of the covenant ritual? Abraham didn't pass through it. Abraham did not go through the animal. Only God passed through the split animal here. The, the glory cloud that later led the people of Israel, that filled the temple, that's who passed through this sacrificial animal alone. So most scholars see that that is actually God signifying that he is going through this animal for them. And the significance that most people see here is that God took it upon himself to be responsible for both sides of the covenant. Okay? He's saying, I'm going to be responsible for both sides. It was an unconditional covenant where God was promising to uphold not just his own side, but our side, Abraham's side, the covenant uh, people's side as well, to where he would say, I'm going to be faithful to you even when you're not always faithful to me. This was the nature of the covenant that God was entering into with Abram. Okay? So far, so good. Okay, God is going to bless Abram. He's going to give him uh, many offspring, lots and lots of kids. But now see how the next verse starts. If you stop at the end of uh, chapter 15 and start to read Genesis 16, what does it say? Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Okay, and this is where the covenant fulfillment gets a little bit hairy. It gets a little bit difficult. Okay. Abram was still trusting God, but this promise took uh, more than just himself to fulfill, right? It, it takes two to tango, as they say. And, and God was not ready to take Eliezer of Damascus, his slave, for a substitute. God says, no, I don't want him. That's, that's not who we're going to have. You're going to have a son, Abram. That's who it's going to be with. He is going to be the child of promise. And this is where Sarah's mind uh, it kind of puts its nose to the grindstone. Uh, she's... Uh, heard of this promise again, okay? Think of, again, Sarai standing next to Abram, and again, God gives this covenant to them, and it's kind of gnawing at her, maybe, that she's the hang-up, right? She, she's the problem here. Abram's fine. He, he could have kids, but she can't have kids. She is barren, and I kind of have this picture in my mind. Maybe it didn't happen anything like this, but I picture Sarai uh, sitting at the, the sink doing dishes, kind of looking out the window with this glazed look on her face, uh, realizing that she's the problem and wondering how is she going to work this out. And in her main, mental anguish, she's scrubbing this and she slows down. She thinks, Hagar, Hagar, that's how we're going to fix this. Hagar can be the, be the one that does this for me. So Abram's plan was taking too long for her. So she decided to have Hagar, her servant, have the child for her. I mean, she's already doing her dishes. She's already doing housework. She's her slave. Why can't she just have the baby for me? Why can't she just be kind of the surrogate is the way that she kind of uh, works through this logically in her mind. So in her worldly pursuit of the promise, she avoided her circumstances. She said, I have a problem and I'm just going to step around that problem and try to pursue this in worldly means. Now, can I just say that there's a difference between self-help and faith? 
These are, these are two different things, okay? Faith pursues the promise amid the circumstances. It says life's hard, and that's how it is, and I'm going to keep pursuing through this. I'm not going to have a workaround. But self-help pursues the promise by avoiding the circumstances, okay? It says this can't be God's will for my life. This can't be a part of the plan, so I'm just going to sidestep this and do my own thing over here, and that's how I'll get what God wants for me, okay? That's self-help. That's not faith, okay? You've probably heard before, God helps those who help themselves, right? For a long time, people actually thought this was in the Bible. Then Google kind of came out and realized uh, everyone's like, okay, that's clearly not in the Bible. We've Googled this. That's that's not there. Okay, but but really, there's this mentality that a lot of people have adopted, even within Christianity, that God loves those people. He's really after those people who really want to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Okay, that's the ones that God's really after. But really, this is the antithesis of the gospel. It is not that God helps those who helps themselves. But the reality is that God helps those who realize they cannot help themselves. God is actually seeking those who are not well, but those who are in need of a physician. This is the way that Jesus comes to the people. He says, no, you guys who think you're all good and you're pursuing things by works and you've got it all figured out, you, you're fine, right? I'm after the people that realize that they don't have it all together. I'm after the people that realize that they are weak and are pursuing by faith, longing for someone to fulfill some uh, to fulfill that calling on their life for them. Okay, that is actually what the gospel is about. Where Jesus come and does that come and does that for us, where we're not doing it ourselves, but Jesus actually fulfills the side of the covenant for us. And this is why God fulfills not only His end of the deal but ours too. Okay, and this is why He walked through the the split sacrifices alone. Okay. Abraham didn't come with them because God is going to uphold both sides of the covenant. Because if left up to us, we would fail every time. We would. We would fail every time. That's why we need someone to do for, uh, someone to do it for us. That's what salvation means. Salvation isn't just help. Salvation is actually being saved from something that we cannot do on our own. Okay. But but let's not be too hard on Sarai, uh, because in our fear, we uh, we often cave too, don't we? And we start to think about the outcomes of things and how we believe God has called us to this. It gets a little bit scary when uh, the circumstances start to kind of cave in on us. Instead of buckling down in faith, often we compromise in fear, right? Let's just be honest. That's just how we live most of the time. And what we have here in this story is really a reiterated fall, okay? And that's really what happens every time we sin. It's kind of just a mini fall. Think of it this way. Sarah didn't see the hope as clearly as Abram did. So in fearful disbelief, when the going got hard, she decided to pursue the promise by worldly means and told Abram to go into her sleigh. This was her forbidden fruit, you might say. She wanted it so bad that she was willing to do anything to get it. And like Eve, she proposed a deviation from the plan, gave some to her husband, and fell. Okay, They both fell. But it's not just Eve. It's not just uh, the women in this story. It's not just Sarai. Abraham. Think about Abraham. Abraham, like Adam, failed in leading his wife. He was not a good leader for her. He should have rejected the plan, reiterated the promise to his wife, said, no, God called me to do this. It's going to be my son. And God said nothing about your slave. He said that I'm going to do it. And guess what? You're my wife. We're going to do this together. We're going to pursue this by faith. He should have preached the gospel to his wife. Instead, though, he caved. Right? He compromised. He gave in under the pressure. He was a passive man. And again, after this fall, there's a gracious provision made on God's part. Just like in the original fall, he preserved the covenant and patience and left the possibility open for repentance and faith. This was the covenant of grace at work in full swing. 
Once again, God was, God was faithful to people who would break his covenant, who would do what they should not do, even though they knew it was wrong. And he still loved them. He still pursued them. Now, of course, this did give us a result. As we think about what Sarai did with Hagar, it wasn't that nothing happened. Okay? It wasn't that she said, uh, Abram, I want you to go into my slave, and that there was no baby. Actually, it happened, right? Uh, the result was that Sarah uh, actually had a child, but it wasn't her child. It was this stepson, um, and it wasn't the son of promise. It wasn't exactly what Sarai had anticipated in her mind. In her mind, it was glorious and pretty, and we'd get it, and we'd pursue it this way, and it'd all be happily ever after. But then when it actually came, it wasn't quite what she thought it was going to be, was it? it the grass is always greener on the other side. And, and besides uh, the unsatisfying result of her actions, by the way, we call these consequences, she ended up bitter at Hagar and still longing for more. Okay? So in her pain of faithlessness, she hurt herself and others. She's left a, a bitter woman. Let's just be honest. She's bitter about what she has done. This is her consequences that she's dealing with, and she's left unhappy. Hagar is hurt, and now we have a child out of this that's probably confused. This is the actions, uh, or this is the consequences that we get from actions that aren't done in faith. And this is a good place for us now in this Advent season to come to terms with this tragic element of life. This is the reality of life. Consequences are real. Right? We, we can't just Put, uh, put a face on and say, no, everything's happy, clappy all the time. No, it's not true. Sometimes we walk willfully into sin, and there are consequences that we have to deal with. And yes, God pours out his grace upon us and still gives us promise, still gives us hope, but that does not automatically erase the pain of our consequences. It hurts sometimes. It's painful. And Advent is the season where we grapple with this reality that we don't always get what we want right now. And that hurts. That's hard. That's painful. It teaches us patience. And if we try to make things happen too soon or by the unapproved means, we may incur pain upon our own lives and quite possibly pain in other people's lives as well. Hurt people hurt people. Okay? That's what sin does. It hurts people. But it's in these times that we must hold on to the promise all the more. Our, our faithfulness, this is the way Romans put, puts it, and I love it. It says, our faithfulness does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Our faithlessness does not nullify the faithfulness of God. So even when we're not faithful, God is still faithful to us. He remains true to his covenant people. Okay, now if we could move back to the narrative, let, let's keep moving in the, in the life of Abraham. I want to give you a little timeline uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with it. When Abraham was called by God in Genesis 12, it says he was 75 years old. Okay, so think a 75-year-old Abram. And when Hagar bore his son Ishmael, he was 86. He was 86 years old. Think about those timelines and that time. Let's, let's just let, let that timeline sink in and realize that Sarai had waited 10 years on God's promise before she caved. That's actually a pretty long time, isn't it? If God tells you he's going to do something, waiting 10 years, that seems actually like a pretty long time. How long have you waited in a dark season before you came? Okay, many times we cave in a, in a couple days or weeks. Sarah, she waited 10 years. Maybe we shouldn't be so hard on her. Now, now jump forward to where we begin in Genesis 17. Here, Abram is now 99 years old. Okay? He started out 75. Now he's 99 years old. Nearly 25 years after God called him and promised him to be the father of many nations and have as many children as the stars. Here, 25 years later, he reiterates this covenant promise to him and gives him the sign of circumcision to be a symbol of the promise. 
I want you to think about that. 25 long years. And it's at this point in Abram's life where it probably was starting to feel a little bit tantalizing, wasn't it? Where God keeps telling him, hey, I'm going to have this really great thing for you. Here's my covenant. You're going to have lots of kids. You, you can't ignore that it looks like God's kind of over-promising and asking a lot of Abraham, but not giving much. Right? Think about that. 25 years and Abram's seen nothing. And now God's asking him to... 25 years later, almost 100 years old, change his name as an adult. Think about how difficult that would be, going around telling everyone, I know you uh, have called me Abram in the past, but God, he wants to call me Abraham now. So I need to do this quick name change. Okay, that's tolerable. That's not the end of the world. That's a small matter as an adult. But you know what's not a small matter as an adult? Circumcision. That's not a small matter. That's a pretty big deal. So God's asking a lot of Abraham and not delivering anything yet. God hasn't given Abraham anything yet. So is it any surprise that Abraham falls to his face numerous times in this covenant reiteration? As he's giving the covenant once again, Abraham's on his face. He's like, give me a break, God. You say this is a gracious covenant. You say this is a good thing. You say that you have so much promise. And here I am being asked to do so much. And it's in, in this moment when you think that Abraham couldn't tolerate another word when God says this in Genesis 17, 15 through 19. As for Sarai, your wife. Okay, think about that. She hasn't been mentioned yet. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face again and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is nearly ninety years old, bear a child? And God said to God, or, and Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Here is where Sarai, Sarah, is actually spoken of by God. It was 25 years before God revealed that Sarah was, in fact, going to be a part of Abraham's promise. Think about that. 25 years of darkness and waiting as she stood by her husband's side, wondering where she plays, or what part she plays in this. How, how do I come into this? Sarah's probably thinking all of 25 years of darkness and waiting, 25 years of fighting off bitterness from her consequences, 25 years of this painful, longing wait for God to just say something about me. That's a long time. But you know what else? It's also 25 years of grace where God remained faithful to Sarah, even though she didn't feel it at times. Did God give up on her? No. He was there all along. So just... Take that and put that in the back of your mind next time you're going through a really long season. Have you waited on something? I'm sure there's things that you guys have waited on. There's probably something you're waiting on now in the season of Advent. Remember Sarah, 25 years of waiting, and God is not faithless. God is faithful towards her. And even when she's getting bitter, angry at God, angry at her husband, angry at Hagar, bitter, 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 God stayed faithful to her and brought her out of that. So, so long story short, I think you all know the story, but Sarah had the baby. Okay? His name was Isaac, and he was the one that continued the seed of Abraham throughout the ages, all the way down to Jesus Christ himself. That's where Jesus came from. He came through this conception that happened between Abraham and Sarah having Isaac. 
And just about the time that Sarah and Abraham probably thought life was slowing down, they're getting back to a stress-free uh, of, uh, uh, pace of life, God asked Abraham to do what? Sacrifice that son. So that just goes to show you that life never really slows down to a stress-free pace. Okay? Life is never greener on the other side. Just about the moment that you think that you've got things figured out, God is going to call you to uh, work out your uh, faith, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is always a walk of faith in life. So don't think that you're ever going to reach it one day to where life isn't a little bit stretchy for you, where you're being stretched in your faith. This is what Advent is all about. Okay? This is what it teaches us, to learn how to be patient in the waiting. So, so, so some lessons learned from the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis. I have three. Number one, it teaches us patience in waiting. We live in a fast-paced world where instant results are often expected. We want it, and we want it now. But the story of Abraham and Sarah teaches us the importance of patience in waiting for God's promises to unfold. Life's all about the process. That is what life it really is about. As you walk with God, it's the process of being here with God now, even though there's really, really hard things going on. Okay? So reflect on areas of your life where you might be rushing the process. We are trying to get ahead of the game. And you need to be practicing patience there, trusting that God will, in fact, uh, be faithful to you, that his timing is even perfect, too. That's something that we often forget, too, is that God's timing lines up with where we should be. Okay? So patience and waiting, number one. Number two, faith in the face of uncertainty. Abraham and Sarah faced uncertainty and doubt in God's promise due to her barrenness. Okay, that was the circumstance. That was the hurdle to jump over. And this challenges us to maintain faith even when circumstances seem bleak. Okay, they should have realized that God was going to make provisions without trying to make provisions on their own. That was their sin. They tried to work it out by making it happen rather than God working it out for them. God being their Savior. God being the one that goes before them and fulfills His end of the covenant. Even when they can't, they're even unable to. She was barren. She couldn't do it, and God did it for her. So identify areas in your life where you're tempted to doubt and fear. Choose to anchor your faith in God's promises despite the uncertainties. Number three, avoid worldly solutions. Avoid worldly solutions. Sarah's attempt to fulfill the promise through Hagar uh, reflects the tendency of the human heart to resort to worldly solutions when waiting becomes difficult. Notice it wasn't just Sarah either. It was Abraham failed in, uh, in leading his wife well. He, he failed and wasn't a good leader. He was passive. And he just let his wife lead for him into sin. So there's both sides where we can be overstretching sometimes, and we can also uh, have sins of omission where we're omitting to do what we should do. Okay? Where we know God has called us to do this thing right, and we let other people sway our opinions. Where we say, ah, maybe you're right. Maybe I need to give up on that hope and go this way. Don't do that. Don't cave. That was Abraham's sin. So we need to realize that faith involves pursuing God's plan his way. Not our way, his way. So assess situations where you might be tempted to take matters into your own hands and seek God's guidance and trust in his plan rather than relying on worldly solutions. Go to him in prayer. Wait on the Lord. Be still. Wait on the Lord. Know that he is God. He will make, his, uh, uh, he will make your path straight is the way that the scriptures talk about it. He will illuminate our path. He will make it clear to us the way that we should go without us having to feel like we've got to walk out into the dark and do it ourselves. And most importantly, we've learned more about the nature of God's gracious and covenantal love towards his people in the story. God loves you and is committed to you, more committed than you are to him. Have you ever thought about that? God loves you more than you love him. 
And that's actually good news, that his love is greater than your love for him. And that's the whole point of the covenant of grace, is that he loves us more than we could have ever imagined. And and we would have never even loved him if he didn't what? Love us first. His love is what it's all about. And we need to glory in the fact that God loves us more than we could have ever imagined. Uh, Timothy Keller said it this way. I think that this is the best definition of the gospel that I've ever heard. He says this. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. Isn't that beautiful? That, that we are more sinful than we could ever grapple and get our minds around. And at the same time, we're even more loved in spite of that because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. This is what the covenant of grace is all about, church. God's faithfulness to us and our call from him to be faithful to him, to to love him and to trust him and to believe that he has a good plan for our life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. We thank you that um, even though we fail, even though we um, fight off day by day the tendency to uh, trip up, to fall into sin, just like Adam and Eve, just like Abraham and Sarah, just like um, all of the, the sinful people throughout the ages, that though they might have been a good example, Lord, we are also reminded of um, they were human. There's only been one person on the entire planet who has ever fulfilled your covenant the way that it needed to be done. There's only been one person who lived perfectly, perpetually, in obedience to the law of God, and that is Jesus Christ. We place our faith in him today, and I pray that if there's anyone in this room this morning that doesn't know that faith, that hasn't experienced that goodness and sweetness of the gospel where we place our faith in another, not that we might be able to save by being moral people or good people, but placing our faith in Jesus, knowing that he has been that good person for us. I pray that if there's anyone in the room that hasn't felt that love before, that you would reveal and um, show yourself to them in a salvific way through repentance and faith. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.